Hi friends, Rifki here, producer for Nice Jewish Girls. I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about our newest show called Jewish History Unpacked. I think you're going to love it. Hosted by the amazingly funny and interesting and smart Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner, every week they break down a wild story in Jewish history for each other and for us, the audience. Instead of telling you about it, right now I'm going to play episode one for you. If you love it, which I really think you will, subscribe to Jewish History Unpacked in the same app you're listening to this show on. So here's episode one. Let us know what you think. So it's going to be like a little bit of a Clark Kent Superman distinction. And (laughs) I just want to clarify that in no way am I comparing Josephus to Superman. Because Superman doesn't hold a candle. He never went to Rome. Well, we don't know that. Well, he certainly didn't write a book about it. I'm very much an MCU person, so we're going to put the DC thing to the side for a second. Welcome to Jewish History Unpacked, where we'll do exactly what it sounds like. Unpack awesome stories in Jewish history. I'm Yael Steiner, and my childhood dream was to stay in school forever. I'm Jonathan Schwab, and I am in school forever. And we are two non-professional history fans who are not embarrassed to be massive nerds, in particular, history nerds. Yeah, and in even more particular, Jewish history nerds. And on this show, we're super pumped to unravel some pretty major events in Jewish history. Spoiler alert, there's a lot to learn, and some of it is pretty bonkers. And here's what that means practically for this podcast. Each week, Schwab and I will take turns researching the heck out of a crazy story from the last 4,000 plus years of Jewish history, and then we will kind of teach them to each other. And these stories are freaking insane. We're talking about the real story of Hanukkah, Napoleon's attempt to revive a 2,000-year-old Jewish court in the 1800s, but I'm personally psyched for today's topic. So with that, let's dive in. Y'all, this week you'll be teaching me. Listeners, I'm with you, excited, but also not quite sure what to expect here. So what do we have for today's discussion? To get us started, I thought we'd talk about this really interesting, possibly purposefully bungled suicide pact that essentially launched what we know of today as secular Jewish history. And the historian, who many consider to be the first and probably only rock star of Jewish history, Josephus (laughs) Flavius. And I did check, it is Flavius, not Flavius, in case some of you were wondering. And as I began reading about Josephus, I just want to preface this by saying that I was getting super Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code vibes. Mm -hmm. I think he's kind of the person that historians look to when they want to think about themselves as being cool. Mm -hmm. He made history cool. Tom Hanks definitely made it very cool in the Da Vinci Code. We're totally dating ourselves and aging ourselves right now. (laughs) Yes. Um, So Schwab, you're a well-educated guy. (laughs) I hope so. Tell me about Josephus. What do you know about this guy? From what I know of Josephus comes up in a lot of Jewish history classes. I want to say the story of Masada is from Josephus. Fascinating. It's really interesting that you mentioned that because we're not going to talk about the story of Masada today, but the story that I'm going to tell is very similar. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Something about his name. Like, I remember from some Jewish history class the fact that he's Josephus and that's a Roman name. Yes. Something about that. So to take a step back, this man that we've both been referring to as Josephus was actually born a Jew— he also died a Jew. But when he was born a Jew, his name was Yosef ben Matityahu. 
Joseph, the son of Matthias or Mattathias. And he was born in Jerusalem in approximately 37 of the Common Era. And the Jerusalem that he was born into, um, not unlike today, was highly sectarian. And there were really a lot of different groups who didn't like each other and didn't really want much to do with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, This was the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. I don't know if any of these names mean anything to you. Mm -hmm. So Jerusalem was in quarters, but they were just different quarters than they are now. Yes, exactly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were more urbanites. They stuck around what we know today to be modern Jerusalem. The Essenes were a little crunchier, a little more granola. They spent a lot of time out in the desert communing with nature. They were very ascetic. They gave away a lot of their worldly possessions. And even though Josephus was born in the city around the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and at different times in his life self-identified as a Pharisee, he did also go out to the wilderness and spend time among the Essenes. So he actually is uniquely positioned to tell us about this time of Jewish history because he's probably one of few people who spent a significant amount of time among many different types of Jews. So he wasn't as siloed as most people of his era. And Interesting. he even traveled to Rome. So he was like really sophisticated for his era. He was well-traveled. He was well-read. According to his own account, he was somewhat of a prodigy. So you can take that with a grain of salt if you want. <laughs> One thing that's really important to remember as I tell you this is that he is basically the only contemporary source for any of this information. But he was he was something. He wasn't just like Joe Nobody. He was Joe Ben Matityahu. He was Joe Somebody. Um, yeah. I'm starting to see a little bit of that vibe of Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Code of somebody yes. who just knew a lot of different things and, and what just was involved in a lot more than the average person of his day. Yeah, and like, any minute now, some secret society is going to come and like make himself some kind of riddle. <laughs> so just to recap, he was born in 37. And during his younger years, when he was perceived by some or maybe only perceived by himself to be a genius, he spent time with a lot of different types of Jews. He traveled to Rome. Um, and all of this was happening, like his formative years were a little bit after the Hanukkah story took place and we're at the tail end of what we call the Hasmonean dynasty. In the year 66, when Josephus was about to embark on his 30s, a great revolt broke out in the land of Judea, which is the geographical term that we'll use to refer to what is the modern-day state of Israel. And he was apparently, in addition to being really book smart, also apparently like super military smart and like really like G.I. Josephus. But this is all still according to him. Yes. So while historians agree that most of what we get from Josephus is true, um, you know, now using modern archaeology and other sources that have been found since then, um, we really are taking 
every story about Josephus from the mouth of Josephus. Mm -hmm. So just something to keep in mind as, you know, I continue to tell you what an amazing military strategist he was. Well, if you're the one whose books survive, then you're probably going to be painted in a pretty good light. That is a very good point. And actually, a lot of people say that the reason why Josephus's writings survived was because they were the most useful and they had the most Mm. utility. So presumably other people who were there found them useful Mm. and then passed them along to subsequent generations. So he did write about things other than himself. Yes. He wrote four relatively famous books. One is a survey history of the Jews, starting with Adam and Eve. And this is a conversation for another day, but it is interesting that he, as a historian, starts the story with Adam and Eve because today a professional historian would view a clear split between what we consider biblical story and what we consider to be historical fact. So it is interesting that Josephus's Mm -hmm. survey starts with Adam and Eve. That's where the Mm -hmm. history of the Jews begins. And if he's um, writing about himself, then he sees himself sort of as, as part of that story too, right? Like there's no disconnect for him between the Bible and history, and he's part of that grand story. That's fascinating because I didn't think about that. So again, consulting Josephus as the source of this information, in the year 66, a Jewish revolt breaks out against the Romans in the land of Judea. There are a bunch of proposed causes for this war. A lot of it maybe just was pressure bubbling over from all the strife among the different Jewish sects. And, you know, everybody felt a little bit like they were constantly at risk of, you know, being labeled the worst group of Jews by the Romans. So that created a lot of tension. There's religion, also, one of the most common causes of war. Yeah. Yes, religion, but not Rome, you know, inflicting war on the Jews. It was the Jews kind of inflicting war on each other and then getting so mad at each other that the entire region just kind of blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is also a lot of conjecture that certain things were happening with the Romans' presence in the land, including you know, the imposition of incredibly high taxes because... Well, tax is the other major cause of war. They threw a little tea into the Galilee, I hear. Mm -hmm. There's also this story of the Greeks sacrificing some birds outside of a synagogue in Caesarea and the Romans failing to intervene and chastise the Greeks. Well, that's the third major, historically, the third major cause of war is bird sacrificing. (laughs) Yes, I've heard that. I I really should read more up on that a little more because I'm not as familiar with bird sacrifice as I should be. Um, But basically, once the war breaks out, whatever the cause was, um, the Jews are really outnumbered. Um, You know, tale as old as time, the same thing as when they were fighting the Greeks a couple of decades earlier. The Romans have the technology, they have the people, Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that they have the people is that they have thousands upon thousands of slaves. Mm. Um, they have and the are great- the Jews even united at this point with all the different sects and? They're really not. They're mm. really not. Like 
there is a lot of biting off their nose to spite their face situation Mm -hmm. where instead of uniting or rallying around the flag, as we call it in the United States now, they still don't get along. They still fight for primacy among the Jews. Um, And that's actually how Josephus himself becomes a military general. Apparently, he was seen as the compromise candidate between Mm -hmm. the more conservative elders and the younger, more radical zealots. The zealots Mm -hmm. were really the ones fighting in this war, but the elders had still had a lot of heritage power. It's not too dissimilar from today's uh, political parties in the United States. Mm -hmm. But he's traveled among all these different sects, so he's able to bring people together. Basically. And he knows a little bit about Rome because he went there too. Yes. So he he probably was able to sell himself. Mm-hmm. And he did, as we can tell, like himself a little bit and was able to broker this compromise. And he became the governor general of the Galilee area. Mm-hmm. And um, at a certain point during the war, Josephus, who I'm going to now go back to calling Yosef ben Matityahu because I think it's important to make a distinction between who he was as a young person and primarily as a layman, as a lay Jew, and who he was later on in his life in Rome. So it's going to be like a little bit of a Clark Kent Superman distinction. Mm -hmm. Like this is what he did when he was Clark Kent, and this is what he did when he was Superman. And (laughs) I just want to clarify that in no way am I comparing Josephus to Superman. Because Superman doesn't hold a candle. He never went to Rome. Well, (laughs) A, we don't know that, but... Well, he certainly didn't write a book about it. I'm very much an MCU person, so we're going to put the DC thing to the side for a second. (laughs) Um, What was I just saying? So Yosef ben Matityahu. Yosef ben Matityahu. Thank you very much. So Yosef ben Matityahu becomes the governor general in the Galilee. And he decides to move his headquarters to a city. I guess we can call it a city. It was probably a village um, that stood at a high altitude called Jodapada or Yodfat in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. We'll go forward calling it Yodfat just because Jodapada is a lot of syllables. (laughs) They basically construct a makeshift fortress there in order to try to stop Aspatian, who is the Roman general that uh, has just landed in Caesarea from making an advance on Jerusalem. I'm pretty sure that didn't work. Yes. If I remember correctly, the Romans did end up getting to Jerusalem and destroying they, the temple. Yes. So as good as he was. So he wasn't that great. He wasn't that good. But he did manage to hold them off for a little while. And the ways that mm-hmm. he did it were kind of clever. One was... Um, Vespasian was basically trying to smoke them out um, Mm -hmm. with the knowledge that their cisterns, which are basically these big vats of water that had been filled prior to um, the siege, um, Vespasian was basically waiting for the water to run out and in hopes that the thirst would ultimately cause the Jews to surrender. Mm -hmm. But what- If you're going to survive a siege for a long time, I feel like water is one of those things you might need to have a good supply of. And yet, Josephus actually had them waste some of that water by Mm. soaking their clothes in it and then hanging their clothes out to dry on the fortress because they wanted Vespasian to think that they had so much water that they were still doing laundry. 
<laughs> um, and they kind of hoped that when he saw that, like, oh, they're still doing laundry, like clearly they must have a ton of water left. And that Let's maybe turn around and go back he to would have just no, or that he just would have gone somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, once they realized that that wasn't going to work, they mm-hmm. actually um, they made this soup out of what I think is some kind of pea, and they mushed it and they mm-hmm. poured it down every single breach of the fortress so that the Roman soldiers would slip and fall on the soup. I know that this is a real war, but that sounds a little comical. Like, it, it really gave me, like, Home Alone vibes, yes, honestly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so he was clever, and he was crafty, but despite the cleverness and the craftiness, the Romans did ultimately breach the wall, did also ultimately get to Jerusalem, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And thousands of people were killed, but... A lot um, less fun. Yes, through what he later calls divine intervention, Yosef ben Matityahu finds himself in a cave hiding from the Romans with 40 or 50 other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at that point that he was really stuck between a rock and a hard place because he really did not want to surrender, but he also saw that there was no way out. And there were some people among his group who were initially talking about suicide and Yosef and Matityahu talked them out of it, saying that, you know, the body is a gift from God, and how could we potentially, you know, waste this gift? Which actually goes back to what you said about him seeing himself as a piece of the larger theological puzzle. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, as time went on, and one of the women in the group actually tried to sneak out and got caught, and they knew that their position had been compromised— Uh, He suggests that if they are going to commit suicide, they do it through a process of drawing lots. And instead of killing themselves, because that would be offensive to God, they would draw lots to see who would kill each other. And they did this, and you might say miraculously, you might say suspiciously, you might say auspiciously— (laughs) <laughs> Josephus found himself to be one of the final two people left after the entire group had killed itself. Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, when it got down to the two of them, Josephus said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. What do we really get out of killing ourselves at this point in time? Maybe we should just surrender. Wow, that's a good spot to be in. Yeah, like, here's this guy. He's the one who decided how we were all going to go about killing ourselves so (laughs) that we could do it in the service of God. And he just doesn't go through with it. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those things. But maybe all all 50 of them would have done that, and whoever survived would have written a book about it. So, you know, it just happens to be that it was him. Or maybe... So, yeah, you see where I'm going here. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those stories where, regardless of everything else that we know about Yosef ben Matityahu, both in his you know, earlier incarnation as Jewish lay leader and in his later incarnation as Josephus, all the good that he does and the genius that he might have been and the military strategist that he might have been, you look at him as the... Con- you know, the orchestrator of a suicide pact where he doesn't commit suicide Mm -hmm. and maybe he's not as great as we thought. 
Wait, and this reminds me of, because I said before that one of the things that I thought about related to Josephus was Masada. And the Masada story sounds very similar because there's also a suicide pact there. Yes. And what's interesting is that the story is virtually identical. Mm-hmm. And the only source we have about the story of Masada is Josephus. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't at Masada. He wasn't he was there. At, he was already yeah. in Rome. So mm. we're talking about him as a historian recording the story of a battle that he was not present at, at mm-hmm. a time without email, without tweets, without fax machines or mm-hmm. telegraphs or Morse code. He happens to hear the details of this battle of Masada and it's almost exactly like the battle that he had right. been the general of. So yes. that's, that's Josephus's go-to move. He's like, there was a siege, people died. There was probably this elaborate suicide pact plan. So it's totally possible that this was just a thing that people did back then. Mm-hmm. And, or it's possible that Josephus, you know, was a little less creative in his writing um, mm-hmm. than one might be. But it's interesting that you bring that up because, yes, it is very similar, but— I'm not sure that we have great sources on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he survives this suicide pact, and the Romans don't kill him. They don't I'm kill guessing. him, but be- yeah. because basically what he does is he leaves the cave, and he goes to the general Vespasian, and you know this guy—he's not dumb. He he really is crafty and clever, and he knows that flattery will get you anywhere. And he basically says to this guy, "I had a vision." And you are going to be the Roman emperor. Mm -hmm. And because Vespasian likes the sound of that, he doesn't want to risk killing Josephus, who Mm -hmm. might be a prophet. So he takes him as a slave. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, a few years later, when Vespasian does become emperor, they free Josephus from slavery because now they're like, okay, this guy knows something. Mm-hmm. He's got God's ear. God has his ear. So we don't want to be the ones holding him captive. And they release Josephus as a free man. And that's when he takes up the mantle of historian. And he starts writing the history of the Jews. I feel like Josephus, maybe he actually had this prophecy, or maybe he's the guy who goes on Twitter and says, in four years, I think the next president is going to be whoever. Maybe he tweeted a whole lot of things, and then he just deleted all the other ones. <laughs> and then four years later, you know, just retweets his own tweet, and everyone all of a sudden is like, this guy's a genius, you know? Exactly. So he's free now. He's writing history. And so he wrote the story of the Jews from Adam and Eve through his own time. Mm-hmm. He wrote an autobiography. He wrote sure. a defense against anti-Semitism. Okay, wow. And he also wrote one book just about the war that he had participated in called The Jewish War. All the major categories of books, anti-Semitism, autobiography, history, and military. <laughs> so he has a really mixed legacy because mm-hmm. of the things that we've talked about with respect to not following through on the suicide pact And also the fact that he was, you know, writing himself into the story, viewed himself as a genius, viewed himself as a military man. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But at the same time, he really is the guy that we look to as the progenitor of modern Jewish history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some but people- he's also writing all of this in Rome. Yes, he's writing it in Rome and he's writing it under the patronage of Vespasian's son, Titus. So on the one hand, there are some people who think when he's writing the history of the Jews, he's doing it because he feels guilty about what he did at Yodfat. And there are other people who think actually that he might feel guilty about what happened at Yodfat, but because he's writing under the patronage of Titus, we can't really take anything he says about the Romans at face value because he's writing to flatter the Romans. Mm-hmm. That brings me to the question that I really wanted to pose here, which is how do we evaluate historical sources when it comes to Jewish history? Mm-hmm. I read something really interesting. One of the scholars of Josephus writes an introduction in which he compares Josephus to a modern photographer from the 1980s, if you still consider the 1980s <laughs> modern, um, named Lee Friedlander. And Friedlander apparently was the first photographer um, or the first well-known photographer to really not remove his own presence from the photographs. So if he was on a ladder taking a picture of something and the shadow of the ladder falls into the frame of view, he Mm -hmm. included that shadow in his photograph. He really did not need the viewer to forget that there was Mm -hmm. a photographer there. You know, Mm -hmm. some artists want their art to appear as if from nowhere, and they don't want any hint of the artist to remain. But Friedlander didn't do that. And what this scholar does, I think his name is Frederick Raphael. And in his Mm -hmm. book, what he does is he really says, Josephus is the historian who's most like Friedlander in that way, in that Mm -hmm. he does not remove the shadow of himself from his writing. So like all historians have a certain perspective or trying to tell a certain story, but Josephus is is sort of being open about that. Here's my story. Here was my role in it. And, you know, he's upfront about that. And I think, I don't want to say it's a uniquely Jewish position because I'm Mm -hmm. sure that there are others who do it. But to me, it's one of the things that's most special about the chain of history in Judaism is Mm -hmm. that we as a people have this need and desire to perpetuate our story, but also to place ourselves within the story. Yeah. I'm sure you have been to many a Passover Seder. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the Passover Seder, there is a commandment, the commandment of the Seder is to tell over, like the word Haggadah comes from this word, Haggadah or the same root as Vehigadita. It's the telling, the Magid, which is a portion of the Seder. Again, the same root. We have to tell our children on this day what happened when God took the Hebrews out of Egypt. But mm-hmm. in addition to telling our children, so to like really conveying the history, mm-hmm. we also have this commandment to tell the history as though we were the ones ourselves Right. Who were taken out of Egypt, which is why we eat matzah. Lirot et atzmo. Exactly. We're supposed to see ourselves as part of that story, as, as if it was happening to us. So it looks like Josephus really did. I mean, Josephus mm-hmm. literally was there. <laughs> right. But he, he tells the story and he places himself in the story. And I think 
that regardless of how crafty or clever he may have been, um, and I do take your point that he may legitimately have thought he was, a, you know, a line of prophets, in a line mm-hmm. of prophets, and he maybe did feel divinely connected to Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so no matter how crafty or clever he might have been, I think he really is a very good role model for us as we embark on this journey together of talking about our place in Jewish history mm-hmm. and, you know, whether or not we as non-historians have a place in the conversation about Jewish history, um, you know, because we certainly have a place in the Jewish present. We're here. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we move forward in our lives into the Jewish future, like how do we, how do we synthesize what's important to us from the past into the present to make sure that we eventually see a Jewish mm-hmm. future? I know I sound like a, that, I sound like a fundraising ad for like yeah. <laughs> the Jewish Federation. And that's why you or should something. donate, yeah, to your local <laughs> Jewish Federation. But thinking about that question about the Jewish future for Josephus, was that even what he was trying to do when he was writing in Rome after the the defeat of the Jews and the destruction of the temple? He probably wasn't imagining you and me sitting around talking about his work, but was he imagining, you know, future Jews reading his works or he was telling the history of a people that, that he imagined were, you know, on the brink of extinction? That's a good question. I actually, I don't know the answer there, but one thing I do know is that there were many, many Jews in Rome at mm-hmm. the time that Josephus was writing. Um, you know, when the temple was destroyed in 70, that led to, and just the Great Revolt in general, both of those things led to a major exile mm-hmm. from the geographic locations that we've been talking about. And a lot of Jews went to Rome because Rome mm-hmm. was where it was all happening. You know, the same way a lot of immigrants came to New York in the 1800s and early 1900s because that was, you know, Mm -hmm. where it was at. The center of the world. That was Rome. Like, that was Mm -hmm. was where philosophy and literature and technology, you know, they they built aqueducts, Mm -hmm. they built battering rams. Jews lived in Rome for about 2,000 years, Mm -hmm. which is longer than Jews have lived anywhere. Yeah. Um, other than in the land of Judea. So he definitely did have a Jewish audience for his writing. I don't know if mm-hmm. he catered to them. Yeah. Um, and again, that goes back to the question of what his motivations were. But mm-hmm. uh, there certainly were people around who were Jews who definitely had access to this work. Wow. And his are, are just for so many things, his are the only writings that we have from that era. And, and like the only account of this war is Josephus's, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's the only contemporaneous account. So anything mm-hmm. else that we have was heard secondhand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for us now, wow. as we're thinking about what we, what the two of us want to talk about, what we want to share about Jewish history, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're also talking about these things based on secondhand sources. Um, You know, when it comes to very modern Jewish history, Mm -hmm. we have some firsthand sources, but that's also unique. You know, in a way, the two of us, um, being the elderly geriatric millennials (laughs) that we are, um, 
have grown up with the opportunity of hearing about, you know, major events in Jewish history firsthand. You know, I Mm -hmm. am a grandchild of Holocaust survivors and I've met dozens upon dozens of Holocaust survivors in my life and have had the opportunity to hear their stories firsthand. But Mm -hmm. in the next 10 years, maybe less, that opportunity is going to disappear Mm -hmm. for the next generation of Jews. Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot because my children, who are still young, um, are going to grow up in a world, I think, where they're not going to hear survivor testimony of the Holocaust all the time, the way that I grew up hearing it, um, not just in my family, but in school all the time. And for them, it's going to be history in a way that it, that it wasn't for us growing up. Like it was something else. It was testimony. It felt more tangible and personal and real. Right. And I think at a certain point in time, I mean, many, many, many years in the future, it may seem as remote to them mm-hmm. as the Great Revolts seems to us now. Wow, yeah. Um, and when I think about my responsibility, and this is the responsibility I take upon myself, but my responsibility mm-hmm. as a young Jewish person, I want to ensure that Jewish history or the Jewish history that I've seen firsthand or had the opportunity to speak with witnesses to, that that gets transmitted to the next generation in a way Mm -hmm. that is certain and a way that feels alive and in a way that they don't become these obscure stories that the two of Mm -hmm. us are now talking about as, hey, you might not have heard there was Mm -hmm. this huge war in which (laughs) Thousands of Jews were killed, and there's this cool story about a suicide pact, so we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like I would feel as though I failed in my mission to keep our heritage alive. Right. There's something that feels very Jewish about saying, we're part of history. We need to record things. We need to keep them for posterity. Um, and there's something interesting also about Josephus that he— that, that, that it didn't happen to him, that he's really, you know, I was an active participant in it and, and I was a general at this time and, 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 you know, here were all my great strategies and, and he's not just saying, here's everything that has, that has happened to Jews or happened to me, but like, here's a way that I was in the world and was present. And he's also not passive and he's not weak. Mm-hmm. And Jewish history is not always, thank God, the story Mm -hmm. of how we were led into exile or led into destruction, but Mm -hmm. hopefully can also be the story of success and perpetuity and tradition. Mm -hmm. Wow. That got really deep, really fast. Yeah. Good job. Mm -hmm. So let's recap a little bit. Mm -hmm. Schwab, why does any of this matter? What did we just talk about? Give me 60 seconds on how Jewish history started and why it matters. Go. 60 seconds. Josephus got four volumes and I get 60 seconds. Uh, So Josephus is a character, um, lives at a really interesting time. He's part, not just a witness to, but part of this really important war in Jewish history. And he chronicles that and chronicles not just his own life, but how this is part of this broader Jewish story. Uh, And in reading it and thinking about it, that is so relevant 
to us today in thinking about what do our lives mean as Jews in the present? How does that connect to larger things? When we tell our stories, to whom are we telling the stories? Who is going to hear these stories? How are they going to understand them? Uh, and having the character of Josephus and the writings of Josephus just brings up all of those questions. I like it. Mm-hmm. I love the word chronicles. I'm so Ooh. glad you brought that in there. Mm-hmm. My takeaway from this is that it's important to be, this is so cheesy, and it <laughs> comes from a romantic comedy that I really like called The Holiday, but it is important to be the lead character in your own life. Mm-hmm. Josephus didn't take himself out of the story, and I don't think mm-hmm. it was because he was, you know, trying to gain confidence after, you know, a guy broke up with him in the same way Kate Winslet did in The Holiday. But he keeps himself in the story because if you're part of a chain of tradition, you are a piece of the chain and your perspective matters, your experience matters, and people in the future should know how your experience colored your perception of what happened at the time. Mm -hmm. I know that's a little rambly um, and trite. Mm -hmm. But but, what a great way to frame this entire podcast. Well, that is very complimentary of you. Thank you. Because this is, historians have discussed this and, and, you know, like you said at the, at the top, we're not historians, but, but we're part of this story. And, and the way we think about it and feel about it and the way we find its relevance to our lives is a big part of being Jewish and experiencing Jewish history. Yeah, and I hope that anyone who's choosing to spend their time listening to this feels like they too have a voice and a perspective. Wow. Yeah. Your impact on the world is important. It matters. And you should never pull yourself out of the equation. Wow. I feel like now is the time when I segue into the ad for like online mental health services. (laughs) But I mean, not joking. Online mental health (laughs) services are great. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel a little bit empowered by this. Yeah, I do too. This has been a really interesting discussion. And I'm very excited for more of these discussions. Yeah, it was so fun learning about Josephus. I know I'm like the world's biggest nerd for saying that, but it was really, really, really great. Thank you for listening to Jewish History Unpacked, a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you like this show, subscribe on your podcast app of choice and give us five stars and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out Jewish Unpacked for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. And of course, check out our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And most importantly, be in touch with Yael and Schwab. Write to us at JewishHistoryUnpacked at JewishUnpacked.com. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner. Our education lead is Dr. Henry Abramson. Audio was edited by Rob Perra and were produced by me, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening. See you next week.